That was this morning. Okay, Prophetic Intensive starts now. It's for seven weeks. It's going to be an amazing, amazing time. Um, how many people are, are going to be involved in that for the afternoon service? It starts next week. I'll be taking next week to give you guys all a really strong uh, 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 framework for how we're going to move forward. It's going to be absolutely awesome. Just when I say strong, just very clear as to what we need to appropriate to get the most out of the next seven weeks. It's going to be absolutely amazing. So I'm really excited about that. It starts next week. If you miss one, you can just w- listen to the podcast for that week. It's going to be totally fine. It's not just me on each and every week. There's lots of different people doing different sessions. It's going to be an amazing time to prepare us. I said this this morning to prepare us for. 2024. How many people want to be keep their frequency nice and up for 2024? That's what we're going to end up doing, which is really exciting. So I am, and I'm doing the prophetic intensive. Belinda's doing the prophetic intensive. We're all going to do something on the prophetic intensive. And I'm not going to tell you what my additions and subtractions are, but let me tell you this: you might see me lose a tiny bit of weight as we come in to the new new year. Okay, maybe not. All right. Okay, no, it's going to be really good. But it's going to be really, really fun. So we're really excited about that. Good. Anything else? We had a Chad slide, but we don't need that because he's here in person. Very good. Okay. Now, I have known Chad Mansbridge for 15 years, I reckon that's right. Yeah, I reckon eight, nine, yeah, about 15 years. First met him in Sydney, actually. And when he he released the book, what what year did he release? He qualifies you? 2010. How many years ago is that? That's 14 years, and it was before that. So, so, um, what did I say? 14. Okay, all right, okay. But anyway, Chad and his wife, Jay, and all their kids have been sewing into South Australia for a long, long time. They really have. He, he'll give you some of his journey, so I'm not going to spoil that. But, but these guys are the real deal. They, were, they have been sewing. Chad had a church. Did anyone ever go down to Chad's church in Victor Harbour? Very good. <laughs> Chad I've, Chad, I've actually read your book 10 times, and I can never say that about any other book. But if you go out and buy the book, you'll see how I could have read it 10 times. So, so, um, but Chad wrote a book called He Qualifies You, and really uh, had a strong emphasis on the message of grace. And it really did, it added to my uh, portfolio or my, my, um, yeah, my palette when I was moving out of legalism into the revelation of grace. It really did. So I thank you so much for penning that, you know. So, so it's been really good. And so Chad is a friend of Rachel and Todd's and myself and Belinda for many, many years. And so we're so delighted that he can come and preach, minister and teach us today. But before he gets up, I just want to say this. Um, he's preaching on John 7, 8, and 9, right? and well, where, wherever you go. And, and Ariah said to me, the day that Chad messaged me, um, the night before, Ariah was in her bunk bed. She was on the top bunk, and she said, Daddy, can you read to me, read the Bible tonight? I said, of course. What do you want to read? And she goes, I really want to get into John 7. I'm like, and if you know anything about John 7, apart from when Chad unpacks this, it's not the bedtime story. It's just not. And I'm like, are you sure you want to go into... And then, so I'm... I don't know if you've ever done this reading to your kids, but I'm reading down, I'm trying to jump through the passages to find something encouraging from it. And so I'm... nip. But but what's so funny is the next day, Chad messaged me and he said, how I'm thinking of John 7... We talked on the phone. Yeah, we talked on the phone. And 
I said, I can't believe you said that because my daughter said that she wanted to hear from John 7. Uh, and so we just took that as a bit of a prophetic sign. So we think that's so, so cool. So why don't we stand to our feet and welcome Chad as he comes. Such an awesome guy. We're so, such a pleasure to have you with us. Now, do, you want, do you want this story? Nah, I'm all good. Thanks, everyone. Please take your seats. Thanks, guys, fellas. 15 years. And... I have been with you before, but it was probably seven or ten years ago, and I know what you're all thinking. I've aged really well, and, um, but I've got a feeling, and Todd said, look, there's probably going to be a whole lot of new folk around, so it'll be good to do my least favourite thing, which is talking about myself. But uh, as Todd said, uh, we spent, I've spent all my life in South Australia, okay? I grew up uh, in Victor Harbour moved to Adelaide or moved to uh, Flinders, Adelaide to do Flinders University uh, where I did legal studies at Flinders, uh, drank a lot of Coopers, you know, all that, and then uh, went for the Crows back-to-back, you know, victories there in the mid-90s, plugged into a church in Adelaide led by a crazy South African by the name of Rob Rufus, and so most of my young adult years were spent in a church here in Adelaide called Coastlands in the Apollo days where I was really took revival culture for granted uh, I was on the baptism team and, you know, in the mornings there, in the morning services, we'd see dozens of people come to the front. There was a season at least for six months, we'd see dozens of people come to the front, give their life to Jesus, and that night they'd get baptised, and I was on the baptism team in a big water tank and literally be put, uh, putting people under the water and having to carry them out of the tank because they were knocked unconscious. They just got saved that morning. And I'm like, oh, this is Christianity. This is cool. You know, this is normal. And I sort of grew up in that culture. And so by the age of 23, in that apostolic environment, I was stupid enough to believe that I could plant a church. And so I did. My wife and I planted a church back in Victor Harbour in my hometown. We led that for 20 years. And then a year ago, last month, like just over a year ago, this happened. Uh, this happened. We transitioned, although I don't think we could say that anymore, we handed over the reins of our church, the lead pastoring role, and uh, God had spoken to us in mid-21 about that 20 years was our allotted time. And so literally uh, on our 20th birthday as a church, we uh, were prayed out of our church and God had put Coffs Harbour on our hearts. And we don't know why. Uh, It was a bit of an Abraham thing, just go and I'll show, you know, we're still in the and I'll bit, we're not, <laughs> the show bit hasn't really come yet, but we're convinced we're called to that place, we're just not 100% sure of the next assignment uh, and the next project that God has uh, for us. But we're living in Coffs Harbour and uh, my, my four, four kids came up with Jay and I and uh, I'm involved at the moment because uh, God didn't call us to plant a church or to lead a church, we plugged into a church, an existing church up there. I'm working with a couple of Aboriginal organisations, I do youth work with, with one of them, looking after kids in out-of-home care, so kids that are like too hard for foster care, that, that kind of thing, so pretty intense youth work there, and my wife's a teacher at TAFE, and our kids are loving it, and that's it. We've been in costs for a year, and I'm down here this weekend because I was with my friend Marty and Karen Manuel at Harvest this morning, and it's a great privilege to be in your house, uh, so thank you for that intro. Rachel and uh, Todd were there at our 20th, which honestly means so much to me, and it honestly does. It was a huge night. And uh, so, yeah, very glad to, to be with you guys again. That's it. Talking about myself. Least favourite thing ever. Last year, continuing, um, I did release my second book, which Daryl hasn't referenced because you can't read this one ten times. It's a proper size book. It's a big one. But it's simply called You Can Handle the Truth. 
Over 20 years of preaching, I've developed two great preaching passions. One is preaching on Jesus. That is the message, right? And the second is helping people to read the Bible for themselves. Helping people to read, understand, and apply the Bible. And the whole name of that, the technical term for that whole process, Bible interpretation, is hermeneutics. How do we take what was written then and there, find out what the heck it means, and then apply it in our here and now? Well, that whole process is called hermeneutics. It's a very fancy term, but it's basically the art and science of interpreting the Scripture well. And that, he, uh, he qualifies you, you can handle the truth, is a book all about that. It's basically taken from 2 Timothy 2.15, where Paul writes to Timothy and says, be a worker who correctly handles the word of truth. Correctly handles, or rightly divide, some of your uh, old school NASB would say. Rightly divide the word of truth, because there's a right way and a wrong way to handle the Bible. There's a right way and there's a wrong way, and you better handle it properly, because the Bible's not only a good thing, it's a powerful thing. It's like fire, or like sex. Or like many things in life that God has given us that are good things, but they're also powerful. And as good as it is, powerful things need to be handled with care. If you handle it well, it'll bless you. If you handle it poorly, it'll burn you. Okay? And if you want to start a cult or you want to really harm people, use the Bible to do it. Okay? You can do that if you like, because the Bible's a powerful thing. I suggest you don't, by the way. I'm just saying, if you mishandle the scripture, you can actually cause people damage. And so how we handle the word of God is a very important thing. And this book unpacks that. Three simple steps, how to read the scripture, okay? how to read the Bible well, how to choose a Bible translation, what type of zone we should be in as we read the scripture, how to then understand what that means. Because how many of you know, just because that's what the Bible says, it's not then necessarily clear what the Bible means. In the last days, I'll put my, my spirit upon all flesh. Well, that's what the Bible says. But what does that mean? In the last days of what? In the last days of August? In, you know, in the last days of summer? In the last days of planet Earth? What does it mean? And what does it mean when it's... I know it says your sons and daughters will prophesy, but what does that mean? Is that just relevant to the people that Peter was preaching at at Pentecost? Was it just their sons and daughters that would prophesy? And then after one generation, prophecy would cease? Well, there's people in the church that believe that. Is, but, but, but is that what it means? And what about when he says the moon will turn to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord? What does that mean? Does it literally mean that big rock in the sky is going to go blah, 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 and turn into hemoglobin? Is that what it means? Or does it mean something else? All right, so it's one thing to know what the Bible says. It's another thing to work out what it means. Okay, so in that part of the book, we look at things like culture. We look at things like the meta-narrative of Scripture. Look at how do you know where to take some Scripture literally and not literally. Okay, this is exegesis is the technical term. I know what the Bible says, but what does it mean? And then now that I know what it means, well, third step is what does it matter? Who cares? What do I do with it? Okay, just because the Bible says something and just because it means something, what does it matter to you and I today? Who cares? What do I do with it? All right, three steps to handle the scripture properly. That's what that book's about. It's won three international awards. It's endorsed by all sorts of people from Brian Simmons and Catherine Renala and Larry Sparks in the charismatic circles through to Barry Chant that founded Table Bible College, the hermeneutics teacher at the ACC, Alpha Crucis College, a Presbyterian called Bruce Gore. I mean, all sorts of people. It's a great book and we've got them here. You can grab them from me later on. And everyone said, that's enough, Chad. Amen. You're just pumped for John 7, aren't you? Like, get over the ads, man. Get on to John 7. Are you okay? Yeah. Are you all right? All right.
couple of things I know about you, food of dreams. A couple of things I know. You're the type of church that is not hanging around waiting at the rapture bus stop for a retirement village in heaven. Okay. You understand that part of your calling as a church is to take the current climate and culture of the earth in which you find yourself and somehow bring the culture and climate of heaven to earth. That you are culture carriers of another realm and your job is to bring that culture to effect and influence the earth. That you are to be the two out of 12, hint, hint, if you weren't here this morning, like Joshua and Caleb who have a different spirit that say God has promised us something to take land and no matter how big the giants are that oppose us, God is on our side, we can do it. All right, we can do it, we can take the land. This is the kind of proactive Christianity, okay, that you guys are on about. You're here to affect the culture of the world. And sometimes as we affect culture, that's done like light, because our ministry is both salt and light. Sometimes it's very obvious, like as soon as you turn on a light, bing, everyone knows it's on. I saw that. But sometimes it's like salt. You just subtly work your way through society like an undercover agent, okay? And subtly you meander through. But either way, you understand you are called to change the world around you, to take ground. And to do that, we focus on Jesus, understanding that greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. The other thing I know about you is that you have leaders in this church that want you as a church to be somewhat socially aware. Now, when I say that, I don't mean, you know, you know how to have a conversation, look someone in the eye, wear deodorant, for goodness sake. Okay, I don't necessarily mean that, although that's a good idea. It's good to be socially aware. What I mean is that your pastors like you to have some kind of understanding of what's happening in the world around us. Okay? And although we're not consumed with the culture around us and everything that might be going on, because we're consumed with Christ and his culture, ultimately, we still, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, don't want to be unaware of the enemy's schemes. Okay, so we have some kind of understanding. We might be innocent as doves, but in our thinking, we're as shrewd as snakes. We know what's going on. You can't put wool over my eyes. I'm aware of what's going on. Okay, so these are a couple of things that I know about you. It's funny when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and the people said, what must we do to be saved? He said, listen, Jesus, you, repent because Jesus has bled for you, died for you, repent of your sins, you'll be baptised in the Holy Spirit and you and your house will be saved. And everybody said, amen. And then he kept preaching to them and he said, with many words, Acts chapter 2, he said, now you've got a responsibility to save yourself. Jesus saves you. But you have a responsibility to save yourself from what? From this corrupt generation. Every generation, every culture has elements of corruption. And Peter wanted his audience to know, you've got a responsibility to stay whole, saved, to save yourself, to come out of the corruption of the culture in which you find yourself. And the same is true for us today. There is, we exist in a, a culture that has various aspects of corruption about it, and our job is to rise above that so we can bring kingdom's culture to earth. Well, today there are many ways that we can look at this kind of subject, but I want to look at John chapter 7, on the recommendation of a five-year-old, and look at John chapter 7 and walk through and look to see how Jesus, because he's our focus, countered the corrupt culture of the world into which he operated. Jesus countered corrupt culture. And as a good Bible teacher and as someone that suffers from SBS, small bladder syndrome, I need to leave meetings halfway through sometimes, I'm going to tell you where I'm going. 
already. So by the time I get near the end, if you've, you, know, you need to go to the toilet, you can go, don't worry, I can hold on. Chad's almost there, right? Three things we're going to look at today. Countering crop culture. A, we need to be aware. Be aware of the corruption of the culture around us. B, be bold. Be bold. Speak the truth and do so in love. And C, be constructive. Actually do something positive in the world around us. Be aware, be bold, be constructive. We're going to look at counter, countering corrupt culture. Are you with me? Can we go now? Turn with me, if you haven't already, to John chapter 7. We'll do some teaching and then uh, we'll do some preaching as well. After this, Jesus travelled extensively throughout the province of Galilee, but he avoided the province of Judea, for he knew that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem were plotting to have him killed. Now the annual Feast of Tabernacles was approaching. We'll stop right there. Basically, these two opening verses of John chapter 7 give us an idea of the when and where what we're about to read takes place. The Feast of Tabernacles was around about September, October. So this places this, what we're about to read around about five or six months before Jesus dies. Okay, so even though it's John chapter 7, it's not like we're a third of the way through his ministry. No, no, no. We're right at the end. It's about five or six months before Jesus dies. And he's ministering predominantly in the Galilee. Okay, the Galilee as opposed to Judea. Now, the Galilee was basically the very northern part of the promised land. In the Old Testament, Nathalie, okay, was in charge of that whole area. We've got the Sea of Galilee there. We've got Nazareth, where Jesus was born. Uh, we've got Capernaum, Caesar, Caesarea, Philippi, who do you say I am? Uh, the Cana, where he turned water into wine. All those miracles happened up north. Well, 195k south, you've got Judea. And Judea is a new word in the New Testament. It's basically the Latin or the Roman way of saying Judah. So in the Old Testament, it's the region of Judah, which is where we get the word Jews from. Okay, Jews come from Judah. That's how that works. So Judah, in the Latin language, it's Judea. And Jerusalem, of course, is the capital city down south. However, the Bible never talks about going down to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is on a big hill. Okay, so whenever the Bible talks about going to Jerusalem, you go up to Jerusalem, even though we're from Adelaide and we say you go down south, whatever, get over it, that's how it is. Right, so Jesus is here in Galilee and down south in Jerusalem and Judea, there are leaders down there, up there, that want to have him killed and we'll find out in a moment why that is the case. Keep reading. So Jesus' brothers came to advise him saying, Jesus, why don't you leave the countryside villages and go to Judea where the crowds are? so that your followers can see your miracles. No one can see what you're doing here in the backwoods of Galilee. How do you expect to be successful and famous if you do all these things in secret? Now's your time, big brother. Go to Jerusalem, come out of hiding, show the world who you are. His brothers were pushing him, even though they didn't yet believe in him as a saviour. Could be we've got a bit of a tone of Joseph and his jealous brothers thing going on here. We're not too sure. But basically what we know is that there were uh, some different opinions about Jesus at this time in history. Some people wanted him dead. Some people loved him. And some people were on the fence. They weren't too sure. And his brothers were a bit like this. And they say, why don't you go down to Jerusalem? Well, we pick up again in verse 9. It says this. Jesus lingered in Galilee until his brothers had left for the feast in Jerusalem. And then later, he took a back road and went to Jerusalem in secret. 
During the feast, the Jewish leaders kept looking for Jesus and asking around, where is he? Have you seen him? Where is he? Have you seen him? Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Have you seen him? Where is he? Have you seen him? These Jewish leaders here in Jerusalem, we find out later, are basically the Pharisees and the chief priests and the Sadducees. Now, we preachers have done you a great disservice in the past by describing the Pharisees as the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, that is true, but it's only partly true. The Pharisees and Sadducees were also part of the political system of the day. Okay, they were also political leaders because the Jewish people had a council that ran them called the Sanhedrin. It was 70 men, and they were basically made up of men from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were basically the blue team and the red team, okay, <laughs> like all parliaments. So they made the Sanhedrin that ran the Jewish people. Now, this thing, again, is not in the Old Testament. The Sanhedrin is something that emerged in between the Testaments, what we call the intertestamental period. When the Old Testament closes, Persia is in charge, okay, they send God's people back to rebuild Jerusalem, everything's fine and dandy. Then Alexander the Great comes through and he takes out Persia. He's the goat in Daniel's vision, okay? And then he dies of syphilis or something in 33 years of age. And out of Greece come four other kingdoms, four horns out of this goat. One of them leads God's people for a while and they're pretty good. And then the other group of people lead God's people for a while and they're called the Ptolemies and they are absolute scumbags. They do not treat people, God's people very well at all. And so there's a guy called Judas Maccabees who rises up in a revolt against them and the Jews have a hundred years of government where they govern themselves. It's known as a hundred years of Jewish independence. And so this is where the Jewish people celebrate the holiday of Hanukkah, so something, something to do with an armadillo, not too sure about all that, but anyway, you've got Hanukkah, right? Judas Maccabees, they have a hundred years of independence, and that is where the Pharisees and Sadducees come in, because they're governing themselves. They have this council called the Sanhedrin. Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were therefore the social elites of the day. Okay, they were the social elites. They were the ones who were the moral police, told everybody else what they should do, everybody else what they should believe. Uh, tad on the snobby side, the word Pharisee actually means separated from you commoners. Sanitise my hands every time I look at you, that type of thing, right? And while they were the moral police and told everyone how they should behave and set the moral tone in society, we all know behind closed doors they did anything but actually obey the very things that they taught. They saw themselves as society's standard setters, determining orthodoxy, and delighted in telling everybody how they should behave. These are the people that are looking for Jesus. Keep reading, verse 12. A controversy was brewing among the people because there were so many differing opinions about Jesus. Some were saying, he's a good man. While others weren't convinced and insisted, saying, nah, he's just a demagogue. New Living Translation says, he's nothing but a fraud, who deceives the people. I want to camp right here for a moment. This verse starts to give us something of an idea of what's going on in Judea at the time of this story. Jesus was the hot-button issue of the day. No one was talking about climate change, although they were in the Roman warming period, right? No one was talking about transgender issues, no one was talking about Hamas or the voice or vaccines. Everybody was talking about Messiah. 
Who's the Messiah? Who's the Messiah? It's time for Messiah. Who's the Messiah? A controversy was brewing. This was the thing that was on everybody's minds. And one of the reasons for that, of course, is because everyone had their eschatology calendars out, okay, their charts from Daniel, the book of Daniel, and they realised that the 79, or sorry, the 70 weeks, okay, the 70 times 7 weeks, that this time clock was ticking and it was time for Messiah. So everyone was wondering, you know, the, you've got the, the, the uh, statue of Nebuchadnezzar, we're down to the time of the iron, who is Messiah? This is the big topic of the day and there's controversy going on about it. Everybody is talking about this issue and that's one of the reasons that when John the Baptist comes along and he starts baptising, literally tens of thousands of people would come out to him. They would walk through the bush to see John the Baptizer because this was fever pitch and some of you saw this in the documentary. Um, it was really picked up, this whole vibe of... 1979, Monty Python, Life of Brian, that documentary, remember that one? And they really picked up on this theme about Messiah is everywhere. Everyone's thinking about Messiah. That is what is going on. Well, Jesus looked like a very promising candidate for this, okay? Jesus looked like a very promising candidate for the Messiah. Even though most of his ministry was performed up here in the north, the people down here had heard of him and were talking about him. Why? Well, one day, when Jesus was up here, he performs a miracle and he heals a man of leprosy. It was his seventh miracle, if you read the chronology. And it gets about four verses in the Gospels. Not that big a deal. Just a man with leprosy? Who cares? The dude walks on water, turns water into wine, he's raised dead people already. What's, what's the big deal about the leper? Well, this is the big deal. He heals a man of leprosy and he says, now listen, mate, you have an obligation under the law of Moses, according to Leviticus 14, to go to the temple and go to the priests and show yourself to them. And so this leper, healed, walks the five-day journey to Jerusalem, knocks on the temple door and says, guys, guess what? I've just been healed by a prophet up north. I know, you probably haven't heard of him yet. He's a carpenter's son, right? I've been healed by this guy. And according to Leviticus 14, you guys have to do a seven-day ritual you know the whole thing in, you've read about the blood on the earlobes and the blood on the toe and, the blood, and then the anointing. There's a whole thing when a leper was healed. Well, guess what? This is the first time in Hebrew history that this has happened since Moses. And so for 1,500 years, God's people have been going through the scrolls, repeating them, writing them down, memorizing. The priests knew them and they'd never had to put Leviticus 14 into practice until this dude knocked on the door. Well... The priests and the Pharisees in Jerusalem, bing, 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 this gets their attention. And so quietly, what do they do? They send spies up to the north to see what the heck is going on. And that's why as you read the gospel, the very next healing that Jesus does is when four friends lower their friends down on a mat. And as you read that story, it says the Pharisees and the priests from Jerusalem were there watching. How did they know about Jesus? Because some dude knocked on the door. They found out, and now they're looking into him. And Jesus knows that they're there. And Jesus, who, yes, is a pastor, so he's gentle and meek, and blah, 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 he's also a prophet, and he's provocative. And knowing that they're there, he says, your sins are forgiven. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They murmur, and Jesus said, I'll show you. And so that's what happens. 
So the people in Jerusalem had heard about Jesus, even though he scarcely went there. Well, what's the point, Chad? The point is this. Jesus keeps ministering, and the Pharisees keep watching. The people keep loving Jesus. The Pharisees keep watching. They keep, they keep, he keeps healing. They question him. The Pharisees keep watching. Over and over and over this goes. And as more they watch him, and the more miracles he does, the harder they allow their hearts to get. It's all Pharaoh in Egypt all over again. Okay, God's people were becoming Egypt, or the leaders of God's people were becoming Egypt. They were actually becoming Pharaoh. They were hardening their hearts harder and harder and harder until one day Jesus has the audacity to heal a man who was mute and deaf and cast a demon out of him. And the people freak out. And the crowd says, surely this must be the son of David. What? This guy must be the Messiah. And the Pharisees that day, it says there in Mark, wherever, it says that the Pharisees decided to plot to kill him. And they say, he is not the Messiah. We've got to put an end to this. They made up their mind to reject Jesus. They closed their eyes. They hardened their hearts. Despite the evidence, they said, the debate's over. Chad, what's your point? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He is the hot-button issue of the day. Everyone's talking about Messiah and everyone has an opinion about him. Some are for him, some are against him, some are sitting on the fence. And everybody has an opinion. There's a great controversy. Everyone has an opinion. It's a polarising issue. Some vote yes, some vote no, and all the elites are saying no. They've already made up their minds. Let's see what happens. Verse 12 again. A controversy was brewing among the people and there were so many differing opinions about Jesus. Some were saying he's a good man. Others weren't convinced insisting, insist, no, saying he's a demagogue. Yet, no one was bold enough to speak out publicly on Jesus' behalf because they were afraid of the leaders of the day. Isn't that interesting? Everybody had an opinion about Jesus. But those on one side of the debate were afraid to speak up. It is the social issue of the day that everybody's talking about. But if you felt this way about Jesus, you were afraid to say it publicly. And here's where we begin to see signs of a corrupt culture. One of the signs, one of the many, it's just the one in this story, of the corrupt culture that Jesus was dealing with. I said to you right at the start, I've told you where I'm going. Jesus dealt with corrupt culture by being aware of it, by being bold in his speech, and by being constructive with his hands. And my first point to you today, tonight, is this. When it comes to corrupt culture, be aware. Don't be afraid, don't be alarmed, but be aware that corrupt culture seeks to frighten truth-tellers into silence. And it will do so by using mockery, by using smear, and by using threats. Mockery, smear, and threats. People had an opinion about Jesus, but they weren't, they were too afraid to speak out. So you keep reading through John chapter 7, the Pharisees are still watching Jesus. Okay, they're still watching him. What's he going to do? What's he going to do? We're watching this guy. What's he going to do? And he gets more popular. More people are listening to Jesus. The more he says, the more he makes sense. The more he says, the more people follow him. And the Pharisees get jealous and jealous and jealous until they say, that's enough. We've got to shut this guy down. We've got to deplatform him. 
okay? So what they do is they go to the temple guards, the working class guards that looked at the temple, and they said, go and arrest Jesus, shut him down and bring him to us. Shut this guy down. And the guards go, you read this in chapter 7 if you keep reading because it's a long chapter and it's hard to find bits that suit a five-year-old, but anyway, you can do it, right? He goes there, the temple guards go and they listen to Jesus and they're like, he sounds odd to me. Actually, I've, I've never heard this guy before, but he sounds all right. And they go back to the Pharisees empty-handed. This is where we pick up verse 45. So when the temple guards returned to the Pharisees and the leading priests without Jesus, they were questioned, where is he? Why didn't you bring that man back with you? They answered, you don't understand. He speaks amazing things like no one has ever done before. The reason they spoke like that, of course, is because these are the working class people, okay? The temple guards are not the snobs of the day, okay? They're not the elites, they're the ordinary people that still have common sense about them, right? The religious leaders did what? They mocked. Oh, so now you've also been led astray by him. Do you see even one of us, your leaders, Following this guy, this ignorant rabble swarms around him because none of them know anything about the law. They are all cursed. As we'd say today, they are nothing but a basket of deplorables. All right. So the Pharisees out and out dismiss, out and out dismiss with such disdain these temple guards that say, hey, since I've heard him for myself, I actually really like the guy. And they say, do you even see one of us, your leaders? Don't you know that we're the experts? Don't you know that you aren't allowed to have your own opinion? Only ignorant people have their own opinion. Well, have you done your own research, have you? Okay, you're a good one. Us are the experts. <laughs> we are the experts and not one of us believe in Jesus. So neither can you. Not one of us believe in Jesus. The disdain there is quite palpable in their voice. Keep reading. Just then, Nicodemus, who had secretly spent time with Jesus, he was actually one of these on the Sanhedrin, right? He spoke up because he was a respected voice among them. And he cautioned the Sanhedrin saying, hang on, guys, hang on. Doesn't our law decide a man's guilt before we first hear him for ourselves and allow him to defend himself? After all, isn't this written in our law, haven't we learned as a society from 1500 years from when Moses gave us the law that you don't judge someone until you've had two or three witnesses, you hear them out, you allow them to speak, you weigh up the evidence and then you make your decision. Are you sure that we've actually followed proper process before we had an opinion about this man? And what do they do to Nicodemus? They argued, oh, so now you're an advocate for this Galilean, are you? It literally says there, so you're from Galilee, are you? Search the scriptures, Nicodemus, and you'll see there's not even one mention of a prophet coming out of Galilee. So with that, their debate ended, and they each went their own way. Debate is over. We have consensus. 97% of the Sanhedrin agree. We've got 50 retired generals from the Sanhedrin involved, you know, looked at the Jesus laptop and worked out as Roman propaganda. It's fine. We've decided. We've decided about this guy. Nicodemus, you do not have a voice 
here, we will not listen to you. And the amazing thing is, how many of you have heard the word hubris before? Hubris is where someone speaks really confidently, but what they say is totally wrong. (laughs) They are really self-confident, but these guys say, there's no prophet that comes out of Galilee. Do you know how many prophets come out of Galilee? At least five. Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, Nahum, uh, Hosea, he's a pretty decent prophet. Five of them come, but they were so self-confident. So self-confident. And even in their confidence, they just spouted things that were totally wrong. Hubris. BS. Bad science. They just didn't know what they were saying. (laughs) But my main point here is how they treat Nicodemus. Nicodemus points out that, listen, we have a law, we have a culture, we have a history that we make decisions based on hard thought through evidence. Hearing out the other side first. And in response, all the people do these other religious leaders and political leaders, is they resort to name-calling. They say, you're just a Galilean yourself, aren't you? You're just from up there in the sticks, Nicodemus. In the legal world, there's a Latin term for this. When you don't argue the point, instead you smear the man. And that word is ad hominem. When you attack the man and not the ball, it's exactly what these guys do. What's your point, Chad? My point is this corrupt culture used mockery, this ignorant rabble knows nothing. Use smear, you're just a stupid Galilean, aren't you? And they also, as you keep reading, used threats. As you look in chapter 9, uh, when Jesus heals a blind man, okay, this, this blind man's healed and all the crowds are going bunter and it's like the Pharisees are like, what are we going to do? They're like, get his parents here right now. You know? And they call in the parents and in chapter 9, it says this, they, they say, tell us, how did your son get healed? And his parents say, we have no idea. They're from the same part of town, right? We have no idea. We don't know what happened to our son. Ask him, he's a mature adult, he can speak for himself. Now the parents were obviously, what? Intimidated. They were intimidated by the leaders of the day because they had already announced to the people that if anyone publicly confessed Jesus as Messiah they would be excommunicated. They would be de-synagogued. In, in, in Jew, um, Jerusalem at the time, there 130 synagogues. And that was basically your place in polite society. If you don't toe the line with what we, the elites, have already decided, you will be taken out of polite society. You'll be excommunicated from synagogue. And essentially, that means three things. Synagogue was the place of their learning, so you wouldn't be able to get educated. Synagogue was the place of their socialising, so you wouldn't be able to socialise, you wouldn't be able to connect with other people socially. And synagogue was the place where they traded, it's where they found their business. If you weren't part of it, synagogue was your community. The equivalent today would be not being allowed to get educated, you know, which would never happen, not being allowed to participate in, I don't know, social media or whatever, you know, be shut down from that because you don't toe the line, and maybe having your bank account shut or something because you aren't voting the way that we have told you you must. I'm glad this doesn't happen today, but it was one of the things that Jesus faced in his culture. Chad, what's your point? Jesus encountered a corrupt culture, but he was aware of it. A, be aware. B, Jesus was bold. He was aware and he was bold. My encouragement to you today is to also be bold, like Jesus, to hold firmly to your convictions and speak the truth with courage and clarity. 
to hold firmly to your convictions and speak the truth with courage and clarity. Back to John 7, 13. Yet no one was bold enough to speak out publicly on Jesus' behalf for fear of the Jewish leaders. However, Jesus was bold. Not until the feast was halfway over, Jesus finally appeared at the temple courts and he began to teach. The Jewish leaders were astonished by what he said and and taught and said, how did this man acquire such knowledge? He wasn't trained in our schools. He doesn't come from us. Who taught him? So Jesus responded, I don't teach my own truth, my own ideas, but the truth revealed to me by the one who sent me. If you want to test my teachings and discover where I receive them, then be passionate to do God's will and you'll be able to discern if my teachings are from the heart of God or from my own opinions. Charlatans praise themselves and seek honour from men, but my Father sent me to speak truth on his behalf. That has got to be a favourite verse for somebody here today. My Father has sent me to speak truth on his behalf and I have no false motives because I seek only the glory of God. There were two reasons for Jesus' boldness to speak. One was the authority of his Father. I'm not speaking my truth, your truth, my truth. I'm speaking the truth. It's the truth of my Father. It is eternal truth, and that's where my confidence comes from. And number two, he was bold because he knew the state of his heart, that he was doing so in a humble place. You know, sometimes confidence and arrogance do look similar. But you can discern a heart of somebody to know when there's humility there that someone is seeking the glory of others and the help of others, then that is a, someone that can speak boldly and boldly because their true boldness comes from humility. Amen. What did Jesus speak? The next verse tells us. Jesus keeps speaking, verse 19. Moses has given you the law, but not one of you is faithful to keep it. Moses gave you the law, but you're not doing, you're not practicing what you Preach. You are, in fact, lawbreakers. Why then would you seek to kill me? In the face of corrupt culture, Jesus stood up and he called out the hypocrisy of these elites. And he also exposed their hidden agendas. Behind closed doors, I know what, I know what you're doing behind closed doors. You're trying to kill me. And you say that we should obey the law, but you're not practicing what you preach. Jesus called out their hypocrisy. Why did Jesus bother with this? Why did he attempt this? Well, as Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Luke, hypocrisy works like what? Through a batch of dough? Yeast, leaven. It works through yeast. It's subtle and it's there. And if it's allowed to stay and if it's allowed time to brood, the whole thing will be affected by it. That is how powerful hypocrisy is. It affects a whole society. You see, when, our, when we're part of a culture that becomes okay with hypocrisy, saying stuff that is just clearly not true, people become ambivalent to truth. We actually don't care about the very concept of objective truth at all. And if we don't care about truth, we will lose the ability to respond to truth when it really matters. Is it true that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him? That's the truth. Is that important? Yeah, that's kind of important. So it's kind of important to have a society that believes something can be true. That truth actually exists. But when we tolerate hypocrisy, 
when we're okay with saying lies that everybody knows is not true, but we'll just put up with it, we become ambivalent. We develop a culture that's actually ambivalent to truth. Truth doesn't really matter. You can never know what's actually true anyway. Who knows? Who knows what's actually true? No, no, no. You can know what's true, and it's important to. So let's not tolerate repeated lies all the time. Jesus called it out. Jesus was bold. Truth matters because there is eternal significance in the battle of truth. And a corrupt culture would want to wear us down with lies, wear us down, so that eventually we have a culture that is completely ambivalent to truth at all. So when Bob has a long criminal history, sexual assault, raping women, and he goes to court, and he knows his head's on the block, Bob rocks up to court, and just before his trial day, he says, my name's not Bob, I'm Barbara. I'm a woman. And as a society, we go, she is Barbara, she is a woman, we will send her to women's prison. We are accepting a lie that is just saying truth doesn't matter. When we say, baby, beautiful baby, growing baby, look at baby, scan of baby, <gasps> got a little willy, it's a baby boy, baby, baby, look at baby, care after baby, mum's looking after baby, and then mum says, it's not a baby, it's a fetus. And we say, okay, that's right, it's not a baby, it's a fetus. What are we doing? We are allowing a lie to exist that just permeates a culture where truth actually doesn't really matter. When we make claims and just let them lie, like the changes we're seeing on the Earth's climate are going to have human extinction in 12 years, and we just listen. When we hear claims, like modern-day Israel is a genocidal apartheid state, and we go, when we hear claims that Australia is a deeply and irredeemably racist society, no thinking person believes these things. But the more we are silent as they are spoken, okay, the more we're silent as they're spoken and don't speak the truth boldly, the more we actually contribute to a culture that says there is no truth, truth doesn't matter, it's okay what you say, anybody can say anything, and therefore there is no such thing as truth whatsoever. Nobody can be trusted. You can never know the truth. You've got your truth. I've got mine. And so when we come along and say, Jesus is the only way to the Father, and there is an eternity, well, it's not, there's nothing to be true. How can you know that for sure? Nobody then takes it seriously. My friends, we are called to be countercultural. We are called to be countercultural. And whereas corrupt culture attempts to intimidate, shut down, dominate, silence, censor, accuse, abuse, and pontificate, Jesus demonstrates the culture of the kingdom by speaking truth boldly. Yes. A, he was aware of what's going on. I'm aware, I know, I can see the schemes of the enemy. B, he spoke boldly. And C, Jesus was constructive. You see, sometimes speaking is actually not enough. 
Yes, Ephesians 4 says that we are called to speak the truth in love, but then it goes on to say that each part does its work. Yes, there's a place to speak, but there's a place to put our hands to work. John 3 says, let us not, 1 John 3 says, let us not love in word only, but also in good deeds. Speaking is not enough. We must be constructive. Last point, C. Find constructive and creative ways to bring God's love, life and light to as many people as possible. Are you glad that's okay? That's okay? You keep reading. Jesus, in chapter 9, we said it before, heals a blind man. How does he do it? Well, it's here in chapter 9 and from verse 1. Afterward, Jesus walked down the street. He noticed a man blind from birth. His disciples said to him, Teacher, whose sin caused this guy's blindness? Was it his own or the sin of his parents? It's another sign of corrupt culture. It's always assigning blame. Someone's to blame for everything, right? You've got to assign blame. Not looking at that. Jesus wants them to see things differently because they're his disciples. And he knows, okay, guys, I know you're kind of still ensconced in the culture that you're from. Let me help you to see things differently. Verse 3. Jesus answered, neither, fellas. It happened to him so that you could watch him experience God's miracle. After all, while I am with you, it's daytime and we must do the works of God. We, y'all, you and me, together, because I'm with you. While we're together. Are we together with Jesus right now? Okay, then this is the that. While we're together, we must do the works of God who sent me while the light shines. There is coming a dark night when no one will be out of work, but as long as I'm with you, my life is the light that pierces the world's darkness. Yes, there are work, words to speak, but there is also work to do. Jesus is the solution finder, and he looks at this man and he finds a solution. Verse 6. Then Jesus spat on the ground and made some clay with his saliva. He anointed the blind man's eyes with the clay, and he said to the blind man, now go, wash the clay from your eyes in the ritual pool called Siloam. So he went, washed his face, and as he came back, he could see for the first time in his life. What do we see Jesus doing here? Putting his hands to work, yes, but putting his hands to work in a creative way. Jesus had never done a miracle like this before. It was a first. God gave him an idea. God wants to give us creative ideas. He gave Jesus a creative idea. Now, why clay? The prophetic types among us and the scripture types might say, well, this is a prophetic picture of new creation. Okay, like Adam created from clay, this is what Jesus is doing. He's, he's offering a new creation to this man and a new start. And to that I go, amen, maybe. But I think this is actually a very practical reason for the clay. I think... The moment Jesus laid hands on the guy, he was healed at that very moment. But Jesus covered those healed eyes with clay. Why? Because if he saw then, there'd only be a few people that would experience that miracle. Jesus wanted that creative miracle to have as much impact as possible. And so he said, listen, what I want you to do, mate, is I want you to go to one of the busiest parts of the city the Pool of Siloam, where there are thousands of people gathered there during this festival. I want you to go there and wash. And this healed man, who now had clay in his eyes, so he still couldn't see, <laughs> makes his way to the Pool of Siloam, washes, 
And there, the expression, the, what, the exhilaration that came to him when he saw, and many of you have seen miracles, you know what that's like, thousands of people could see. Jesus wanted to maximize the moment, maximize the miracle. He had a creative idea to bring God's love and light to as many people as possible. Possibly. What's your point, Chad? Last thing that Jesus did is he found creative and constructive ways to bring God's love, light and light to as many people as possible. And it's particularly this area, as I close, that I want to pray for you, pray for us tonight. You see, many of us are aware of the social ills in society. Many of us are aware, but being too aware of it hasn't done as much good on its own. Many of us do our part to speak boldly. Sometimes we all appreciate as clearly and as kindly and as confidently as you speak, sometimes speech falls on deaf ears on its own. But what is needed to counter corrupt culture and to bring the kingdom culture to earth is constructive and creative strategies because actions oftentimes speak louder than words. After all, culture is shaped not just by how we speak, but culture is shaped by what we do what we actually do. And God is wanting to release practical, creative ways for us to be part of the solution in our spheres of influence in our life. Can you agree with that at all? Drop down, hang on your heart, whatever you do. Close your eyes. Drop down. However you position yourself to hear God is what I'm trying to say. I want you to think about an environment that you are going into this next week or two where there is corruption in that culture. There's something about that environment, that school, that workplace, that situation, that the culture does not represent heaven. There is some degree of corruption there. Imagine that environment and ask yourself, A, what kind of qualities does that culture have that are unhelpful? What are you aware of? What are you aware of? B, what can you boldly speak into that environment? What kinds of words will counter that culture and bring heaven's culture into that space? What can you speak? And now C, what creative ideas can you constructively do to change that culture? What practical things can you put in place that will bring heaven's culture into that space this week. Lord, I thank you that the Holy Spirit rests on us. He is the spirit of wisdom and understanding. He is the spirit of counsel and might of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We thank you that you have placed us in our spheres of influence to be carriers of your culture. We thank you for releasing divine strategies tonight. We thank you for releasing confidence and boldness. And we thank you, Lord God, that more and more we see increase and increase as more land is taken as we see your kingdom culture advance in us and through us. Because the kingdom is not here and there. 
There it is over there. I can see it. No, the kingdom is within you. The glorious one within us, working his way out. We bless you, Jesus. We thank you that greater is he that is in us. We thank you that you are our hero, our counter-cultural king. And we submit ourselves to following you and partnering with you as best we know how. Amen. How many of you are just happy to say, actually, I think I've just got a little strategy, something for this week. Anyone feel like Holy Spirit just dropped something in them as we went there? A couple here? Okay. Great. You can't go for it. Holy. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he wonderful? How many of you are glad we have a countercultural king? <laughs> awesome. Yeah, what should we do now? <laughs> Get pizza. Awesome. Is that a good word? Come on. Did you feel... Do you feel... Do you feel educated into John 7 and then jumping over to 9? Very good. That was awesome. Really, really fun. Thank you so much.